Welcome to the Guardians of Grace podcast. Relax, you have found the right place. We're here to serve. Join us, holding to pure grace. Again, relax, join in with us. Listen on, be blessed. Hello, all my fellow guard dogs out there and all the people in the various 35 or 40 countries that are listening to this podcast. It's time for another episode of the Guardians of Grace. As you can tell, Bill's not here again. His father is back in the hospital again. We've got to pray for him. You guys, matter of fact, right now is a great time to do it. Father God, please let hear the 5,000 voices that are listening to the guardians of grace, all the guard dogs out there. Listen to our voices. We're crying out for you to heal Bill's father and his mother as well. They're both having trouble right now in, in the hospital. So heal them so that they can be healed and that Bill can come back into the podcast and do what he loves the most in life, which is talking about the Bible. That's Bill's purpose for life, to be honest with you. That's what his life is purpose to do, and that's all he wants to do, is share the Bible and the mysteries of the Bible with as many people as he can. That's why we want each and every one of you to recommend the Guardians of the Grace podcast to just as many people as you can so that this message of grace grows and grows and grows until we become a force to reckon with on this planet that we can actually make a change in Christianity as we know it because it it, it needs the change. The people, the Christians, the billion-plus Christians that make up Christianity today are overly burdened and made to feel bad constantly, all the time, about who they are as a Christian, like they just don't measure up. We never were meant to measure up. We were meant to depend on Christ to do it through us. That's the whole purpose. If you just go with the message of you're not measuring up, you have no gospel at all. That, that's, that's what gave Freud his start. Because just saying you don't measure up is what put people in insane asylums. And, that, and today as well, it still is putting people in mental institutions. It's causing depression and breakdowns. I'll, I'll bet you if they really were to analyze what is truly the biggest cause of depression, and they would say alcohol or the, the economy or what, whatever, they would say, I would say legalism is the number one cause on this planet uh, of depression. I believe it causes more depression than anything else. So enough said about that. We just pray, Father God, that you will bless Bill's parents in the name of Jesus. Because Bill and I have been so out of sorts 
due to the adversary just bringing things against us, we have not actually done much of what we had promised to do. It's like five or six weeks ago, we said we're going to do a little bit of investigation into the book of Ephesians. And back then, we should have said James 4.15 will get that done because we sure were prevented from getting it done. But back then, we started this podcast series, and I want to try to at least address what we were talking about back then. We were looking into the idea of the second half of Ephesians being like a practical book or a list of do's and don'ts and things you should do and things you shouldn't do after the first half of the book of Ephesians being revelatory. And and that's true. That's true. We want to put the second half of the book in its proper perspective and show you why there are imperatives for us to do as Christians. And some of the reasons that aren't actually reasons that we think are reasons because it's been so long since we were on the subject I might as well review what we had already done we had basically pointed out that the beginning of the letter of Ephesians unveils a divine plan set in motion by God The plan was before the world even began, God made this plan. And it was that we be holy and blameless in his sight was the goal of the plan. Ephesians was telling us that this this plan was a mystery and had been kept secret in God who created the world from the time of Genesis till the time of the Apostles. It wasn't until the apostles came on scene that the mystery was allowed to be unveiled, but it was a mystery that had gone on through all the annals of time. God was carrying out this plan, and he summed it up in his eyes at the cross. He summed up all the ages at the cross, and Everything that he needed to do, he summed up at the cross through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. As God's plan unfolded, there became a time when we were presented with the gospel and believed. And we were marked with a seal of the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what Ephesians Chapter 1 was telling us that during the course of this plan that God had, we believed the gospel and we were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And we became God's workmanship, which he created in Christ Jesus. Some versions of the Bible say we were his masterpiece. The actual Greek word is poema. And that's the word we get poem from. Ephesians was saying we were God's poem that he used. But it says he handcrafted us 
to do good works which he prepared before the world was begun for us to do. He had these works that he wanted to do through you and I before the world began. So at some point in our life, we believed and were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, and we became the vessel that God used to get the things done which he planned before the creation of the world. Pretty amazing. But that's what Ephesians, the beginning of the book of Ephesians, was telling us. Another aspect of this divine scheme of God's was the disillusion of the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. He actually united Jews and Gentiles into one harmonious entity. That was part of the plan God had, and it worked itself out through the cross. It all actually happened at the cross. We became unified with Jews or unified with Gentiles. They all became one person, one new man. This amalgamation of events is what Ephesians 3, probably 3.10 or 3.11, calls God's eternal purpose. His eternal plan, the plan before time began, his eternal purpose. And in Ephesians 3, it says it was accomplished in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus accomplished God's eternal purpose. And as we're thinking about that from the vantage point of the time zone, he still is accomplishing God's eternal purpose. He's been accomplishing everything God needs for him to do since the book of Genesis was written all through the Old Testament and all through the, the New Covenant. He's working through you and me, these vessels that God calls his workmanship, created to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Well, Jesus in us is doing those good works, and he has been all along, and he completely fulfills God's eternal purpose. And that's what Ephesians 3 is telling us, but he, he's telling it this eternal purpose was for a reason, and you have to get a load of this reason because it's what the book of Ephesians is trying to tell us about. Lord, just help me. Help me, please, boldly say what, what I'm, I'm going to have to say. He, he says, in reading this, you can see my insight into this mystery that I'm talking to you about, and this mystery is God's eternal purpose and his eternal purpose, it, Paul says, grace has been given me to tell you this eternal purpose is so that through the church, through you and I, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, listen to this, his purpose for this plan is to reveal his wisdom through the church 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's the angels, the demons, the rulers and authorities of this cosmos have to learn something from God. And Paul tells us about it in Ephesians 3. He says, they're learning the manifold wisdom of God through the church. As you and I say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. It depends on you to do this. I can't do this. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are learning through us, the members of the church, as we cry out, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. They are learning that they need the help too, that it only comes through God. Anything significant that happens, happens because of God. And the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, wherever that may be, whatever that may mean, what that, whatever the implications of that are, that there's plenty of other planets that are inhabited, I don't know what it means, but it says the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are learning the wisdom that only God has. As we cry out, Lord, give us wisdom. We don't have enough to get through the day. Give us the kindness. We don't have enough to get through the day. Give us more compassion for other people. We don't have enough to get us through the day. As we're crying out to God and saying, give me, give me, give me, the rulers and authorities are learning. They're learning. Could that be the reason that we have prayer to begin with? I'm sure you've heard people ask, well, why do we pray then? Especially if God already knows what we're thinking before we even pray it. Well, Jesus gave us this same answer. He said, Lord, I thank you that I already have what I'm asking for, but I'm doing this for the people around me. He said that when he was raising Lazarus from the dead. He said, I'm doing this for the people around me. I'm praying to you, God, saying I need this person to come back to life for the people around me to learn that I depend on you, God. I, Jesus, depend on you, and I'm teaching the people around me to depend on you. Well, through the church, as we depend on God, too, because we've learned from Jesus, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm. I'm not the one who said this. Paul wrote this. This is a scripture that you're wrestling about if you're saying, oh, man, that's just too big to deal with, too big a concept to deal with. Well, the Bible itself is asking you to deal with this concept. I didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. It says, the grace was given to me to preach the unfathomable riches of the mystery of God to the Gentiles. And this is according to God's eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. That is through the church, the manifold mystery, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I'm just quoting you the scripture. I didn't make that up. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with that scripture. If you're saying, man, that's just 
too much to bear. Uh, nah, nah, I know this, this, this whole Bible is written about us here on planet Earth, and, and don't make it bigger than it has to be. Don't, don't make it some cosmic cowboy space book. I'm not. I'm not trying to do any of those things. I promise you I'm not. I'm just simply going with what the scripture said and pointing it out that God had a plan that he was telling us about in the book of Ephesians and it had a purpose that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And then that's when we get into chapter 4 where it says, Therefore, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Therefore, walk as an upright Christian. And for the rest of the book, we get some imperatives. But what is the reason for the imperatives? to protect the thought that God's eternal purpose, which was accomplished in Christ Jesus, was to make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms the manifold wisdom of God through the church. It's bigger than just us. It's huge. It's ginormous. God's got a greater reason than just the planet Earth. There's more involved than just the planet Earth. That's why his reason may not make sense right now. Because we may not have all the, all the pieces to the puzzle. But he's giving us a piece right now. He's saying, hey, I'm writing this letter about the rulers and authorities needing to learn from the church. The whole heavenly hosts, whether it be demons or legions of demons or, or rulers and authorities in the dark places or rulers and authorities of the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter. They're, they're learning something. There's a bigger picture here. And that's why he says walk like an upright Christian. He's not in chapters four, five, and six, he never, ever, ever, never, ever tells you that the reason you're doing this is because God will judge you and condemn you if you don't. It's never for that reason. It's never for the reason that we'll be condemned or we'll have to pay for not doing what he asks us to do in the rest of the book. We have to pay a payment to God for that. That's not the reason we do it. It's got nothing to do with punishment from God. Do you hear me clearly on that? It has nothing to do with punishment. That is not the reason we do any of the things asked for in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We do it for the sake of this revelation 
for this bigger picture. It's bigger than just the planet. And we're to act as model Christians or want to act as model Christians for the sake of a bigger revelation, for the sake of the gospel, so that the gospel doesn't dissipate. So, so it doesn't like the morning dew on the grass, in a couple hours it dissipates. They're, they're, the dew's not there anymore. We don't want our gospel message to dissipate because of our behavior. We act like we're supposed to act for the sake of the gospel. We do it for the sake of the people around us too so that we don't drive them crazy and they'll still want to be around us. We do it for the sake of what is known as body life, life in the body of God, the people. You know how each one of us makes up a hand or a foot, but all of us make up the whole body of Christ? Well, they call that body life. And we do it for the sake of harmonious body life so that we get along with our fellow brothers and our Christian sisters. Very good, legitimate reason to want to do these things, but it's not because we're going to be punished. That is not a legitimate reason. It's not a reason that they mention. So let's look at some of the imperatives we have in in chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's just look at them. It says, walk in the light, don't drink, give thanks. Husbands should love their wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Walk in love. Don't be immoral or greedy. Don't do any coarse joking. Those are all things that you don't want to do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of this good news, because people will be less inclined to believe you about the good news if you're walking in darkness, meaning if you're acting like a yahoo, they, they won't believe you. Give thanks it's, it's for your day-to-day emotional well-being to give God thanks. It helps you, but it's not so that you will not be forgiven by God. Just not that reason. Let's see, don't be immoral. You kill the gospel being immoral. You actually kill friendships, and you can definitely kill a marriage by being immoral. Greed, greed just causes every man to be for himself and there's no harmony when everybody's greedy so yeah for the the sake of those things don't do them but not for the sake of god will punish you because you're greedy those days are over with we're in the new covenant where he said your sins and lawless deeds i will remember no more it's not an issue of sin anymore coarse joking you can just be labeled as obnoxious if you're coarse joking. So don't coarse joke so nobody will call you obnoxious. A very good reason not to do any coarse joking, but it's not for the sake of punishment. Let's look where it says don't drink. It says 
Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, they're, they're saying, we don't want to see you drunk with wine because we know that the Spirit is not filling you at that point. And that is sad. It's sad when the Spirit isn't filling you. It's sad when you're not under the control of the Spirit. You know how it says he's filled with rage, means he's controlled by rage. Well, filled with the Spirit means controlled by the Spirit. And when the Spirit's controlling you, you feel heaven on earth. Everything feels wonderful, and you get an A for the day when you're filled with the Spirit. So, yes, it would tell you to be filled with the Spirit because that's how you accomplish the Christian life. So, when it says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, it's actually telling you how not to be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit to keep you from drinking. It's not a to-do at that point. It's not a command. It's a how to do a command. It's instructional at that point versus being imperative. Walk in love. Sounds like a command, doesn't it? And until you understand that, that phrase, in love, what does in love mean? In love means the opposite of in human strength. You remember Galatians? Are you so foolish after beginning in the spirit? Are you now trying to attain the goal in human effort? In the Spirit means the opposite of in human effort, in God, in the Spirit, in Jesus, in love. God is love. So if you're walking in love, you're walking in God. It's not a command at all at that point. It's just how to get the Christian life done. It's a direction. The way you get the Christian life done is to walk in in love and not your own human love, in the love of God. In Ephesians 5, we've got a phrase that you would think would be a command. It says, walk as children of light. There it is, imperative mood. Let's do something. That is a command. That's what a command is, imperative mood. Walk as children of light. But once we understand what the child of light is, it takes on a whole new meaning. You think it's telling you to walk as children of light. Okay, let's go to 1 John and shed some light on the subject. <laughs> arr, arr, arr. Okay, in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse... And you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in Jesus there is no sin. In Jesus there is no sin. He never sinned a single time and never does. In his power there is no sin. If you're claiming to be in him and not in your own human nature, then there should be no sin. In him is no sin. No one who abides in Jesus sins. 
No one who sins has ever seen Jesus or experienced Jesus or knows Jesus. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. No one who is born of God sins one single time because his seed abides in him. His sperma abides in him. It's the Greek word sperma. His sperm abides in the child. Which child? The child that was born of the sperma, the spiritual child, the child that was born from your parents, biological, biologically speaking, is a different child in altogether. It actually says he's the child of the devil. He cannot sin because he has been born of God. You remember Jesus saying to Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. The thing that was born of God is the spirit. And here it's being called the child of God that was born by the sperma of God. It's the child of God who is in us. And then it goes on to say, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. The biological child sins. He can't help it. He practices sin. He does it all day long. He can't stop sinning. The child born of God never, ever, ever, ever commits one single solitary sin from the time he is born till the time that you die and are put in the grave. That child of God that lives inside of you never, ever, ever sins. So let's take this information and go back to Ephesians and look at that phrase, Ephesians 5, 8. Walk as children of the light. That's got to take on new meaning. He's talking about walk as if you're manifesting the child of the light, not the child of darkness, but the child of light. It even said in, in verse 8, you formerly walked in darkness, but now you are light. In, in the Lord, walk as children of light. Walk in the Lord. If it's telling you to walk as children of light, it says walk in the Lord, walk as children of light. It's saying walking in the Lord is walking as a child of the light. The two are synonymous. It's two ways of saying the same thing. It's a Hebrew idiom, a Jewish idiom, I should say. Walk as children of light. Walk in Jesus, not in your own human nature as a child of the darkness or the child of earth. That child depiction is all over the Bible. It's child of this, child of that, but either way, it's always child of the flesh or child of the spirit. It comes down to just another synonym for living either in the flesh or the spirit. You see, it, it wasn't a command. It was telling you how to walk out the Christian life. Walk it in the power of Jesus. It was 
an instruction, not a command, even though technically it's in the imperative mood, but it's telling you once you understand what it's saying that in the light or in him has a specific, specific meaning. It means the opposite of in your own human capabilities. Don't walk in your own human capabilities. Walk in the capabilities that the spirit in you, the child in you, the child of light in you, the child of God in you. Walk in the capabilities of him, your spirit in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. All that is saying the same thing. And this little phrase is telling you an instruction on how to live the Christian life. See, it's not even a command. It it gets viewed as a command, but it's not. It's not a command. Big difference. There's a big difference. Because I will tell you, in chapter 5, There's several places that are not actually commands. They're instructional phrases because they're telling you to do it not in your own power. I challenge you to read Ephesians chapter 5 and highlight or underline all the phrases that are telling you how to walk the Christian life. Phrases you formerly thought were commands to do something because you're a Christian and because you think God would punish you. That idea just isn't found in the book of Ephesians, which brings me to another passage that I I think we need to tackle because I just said the idea of punishment is not in the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 5, and watch what I'm going to read to you next. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So that means as in the spirit. And walk in love. Walking in love is the opposite of walking in human love. Walk in God, walk in the Spirit, walk in love, not in your own human capabilities. See how much it's telling you how to live the Christian life? It tells you not by human performance over and over and over and over again. It's in almost every verse. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness, silly talk, coarse joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For you know this with certainty, that no immoral or impure or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, now, That sounds like you're not even going to heaven if you don't do these things. That these these commands very much has to do with punishment. And you you won't even go to heaven. 
let's just analyze this under the lens of being a new covenant reader and knowing what the new covenant stands for, that your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more, and I'll give you my spirit and place it in you and cause you to do my statutes, which is live the Christian life. And from the least to the greatest, you will all experience me. We experience Christ and give God the credit when we are and we store up treasures in heaven. That is our the essence of our new covenant. Live by the Spirit, give the Spirit credit, and store up treasures in heaven for, for the future. That's the parameters of the new covenant covenant. That's the new covenant judicial system. It it can be broken down to that simple of a thought. So please grasp that. That, That's your new covenant right there. Don't ever let anybody sway you from understanding what the new covenant is. So it says, certainly no immoral, impure covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. We have to understand what an inheritance in the kingdom of God is. Then it says, let no one deceive you with empty words because of such things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God. Now, if that's not scary, I don't know what is until we find out what the wrath of God actually is. Do you you know? It has meaning. It can only mean what it actually means. We can have all kinds of images in our head of what the wrath of God is, burning in hell, on and on it would go. But let's... Try to see what the Bible has said the wrath of God is. And on who does the wrath of God come on? Now, you guys, follow me right here with what I'm about to say. I'm asking you a question. Ask yourselves this question. It says, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So there's a son of obedience would be the son born of the spirit, the son of obedience and the son of disobedience, the children of obedience and the children of disobedience, the children of the human nature and the children of the divine nature, the children of wrath and the children not of wrath. Can you begin to see that's why it had to put in that phrase, the wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. Why didn't it just say people who don't believe in God or something like that? There's many things it could have said, but it specifically talk about this one idea that you're supposed to know. You're supposed to have this, the lingo. It's a term of art. The, the children of God, the children of the devil, all those things mean flesh or spirit. The thing born of the sperm of God or the thing born of the sperm of your parents it's just replete through the Old Testament, so you have to get a handle on what it's talking about each and every time it mentions the subject. So the wrath of God comes on what? 
the human nature and what is the wrath that comes on the human nature. They told us all about it in Genesis when he said, you'll produce thorns and thistles and you'll work hard and by the sweat of your eyebrow and the blood off your hands, you'll produce food for yourself. That was the punishment that God gave Adam. That was the wrath of God on Adam, a wrath of futility. And that wrath of futility still stands today. In our human nature, we get no help from God. In our human nature, produces thorns and thistles and it works all day long just to produce thorns and thistles. That's the wrath of God, but it only comes on our human nature. The blessings of God come on our spirit because the spirit never sends one single itty bitty time. It, it runs perfect. God would never do anything but bless the spirit, but the human nature, not so much. It, the, the wrath of God is just an absence of blessings. It's not that he does anything bad to it. It's just that he doesn't do anything good for it. He makes a bit distinction between it and you. Your human nature is not you. Your human nature is known as the old man of us. Do you remember in Romans 6 where it says the old man of us was crucified? Or Ephesians 4.22 where it says the old man of us is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Present tense. One, it was crucified past tense. That's from God's point of view. Two, it was very much alive and active in present tense in our lives. Well, the old man of us does not inherit the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God and your inheritance is something that it is true. It's something that you'll get at the end of time. You'll get a big portion of your inheritance at the end of time. In your day-to-day -day life, you can have a little bit of your inheritance from time to time. And it's saying the old man never gets any of that inheritance of the kingdom of God. It didn't say he never gets to go to heaven. The kingdom of God never speaks about going to heaven. The, the kingdom of God, one of the definitions is the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When it, it, it says the old man of us will not inherit the kingdom of God, it means the old man of us will not taste a little bit of that righteousness, peace, and joy. It will always feel like it doesn't measure up. It will never inherit a piece of the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus said you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God because you have to have a spirit in you because only your spirit enters the king of God, the kingdom of God. Your human nature 
stays outside the banquet where it's dark and there's gnashing of teeth and wailing. You see, all those verses about gnashing of teeth and wailing that Jesus was talking about, he was, it was all talking about the human nature not being able to get in the spirit, not being able to get in the kingdom of God. See, there's a lot of lingo to this Bible. There's a lot of terms of art. It turns out you have to get to know them and familiarize yourself with them. And I know for most of you, this is the first time you've ever heard of such a notion and such a notion of terms of art or the lingo in the New Testament, but it's there. And now that you've been turned on to it, you can begin to learn about it. And you, you could spend years learning about it and not have not know it all. I don't know it all, and I've been learning about the kingdom of God and the spirit of God and the inheritance of God and the 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 pledge of God and all those things that they're in Him in Christ. All those phrases that have meaning. There's specific phrases with specific meanings in. I've been studying them for years now. I still don't know them all, but at least we're learning about this one, about the the kingdom of God being a feeling of righteousness, peace, and joy, and you can't enter into that feeling of righteousness, peace, and joy in your human nature. That's why you have to be born again, because you have to have a spirit man, because only the spirit man goes into the kingdom of God. The natural man does not go in the kingdom of God. He goes where the wrath of God is on him with all that futility and really nothing more than just futility. That's what the wrath of God for the Christian as in the human nature is just the fact that you're in your human nature and the spirit of God, there's no blessings for the human nature. The wrath of God equals being trapped in the human nature. If you have enlightenment about all these concepts, the, the human nature, the kingdom of God, the, the old man, the new man, the flesh, the spirit, there, there's a lot of stuff to grasp, to be able to grasp what I'm talking about. But once you do, you see that this book of Ephesians is just obvious. It, it's just obvious what it's saying, but it's obvious that you need to know the terms of art to be able to read it. Otherwise, you just bounce like a, a pinball. Oh, I'm saved. I'm not saved. I'm under the law. I'm not under the law. I need to do things. I don't need to do things. It's just a ball of confusion until you get to learning these terms of art and things straighten out a little bit more and a little bit more as you learn, as the Spirit teaches you, as the Spirit guides you, as the Spirit learns for you. Just like everything else, don't try and learn this book in your human nature. Try and learn this book in the spirit that comes from God, in his power, in his capability, in his intellect, because his intellect will understand all the things that the Bible says. But my intellect 
just doesn't get it. Never had, never did. It wasn't until I started praying for God to help me understand the Bible, to understand the Bible for me. Everything just, it was like I was looking at it through a microscope. Now I could see all the nuances of the Bible. And believe me, it wasn't my intelligence that was showing me these things. In Ephesians, twice in Ephesians, it prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It prays for the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. It prays for the power together with all the other saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God and to know this love that Hooperbalo overthrows human intellect. Well, there, there are two prayers in here and they're life changing because they work. They're magical. They really do usher in the mind of Christ so you can read the Bible. I urge you so much to memorize chapter 1, 15 and following and chapter 3, 15 and following. Memorize those and pray them for yourself all day long. They totally changed my life, man. I went from a human-driven Christian to a spirit-driven Christian and have never been so happy that I made that change. Never been happier. It was the best thing that ever happened to me, even surpasses having a wife, which I love my wife dearly. But the best thing was learning about experiencing the the Spirit of God, that I can literally experience the Spirit of God. I can literally be the vessel that He uses to get things accomplished through, that He manifests Himself through. He talks through me. He talks to me through people. It's so cool to be turned on to this new way of the Christian life because it's so spectacular compared to just behavioral modification. You better behave better because God won't be happy with you if you don't. You better behave better because God will punish you if you don't. He'll make things go wrong in your life when that was the Old Testament. It doesn't happen in the New Testament. He won't do that. He won't do that. I promise you he won't do that. The Bible tells you that he won't do that. Father God, please, Lord, please give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and open the eyes of our hearts so that we can know the hope to which we've been called and the incomparably great power we have as the saints of God, the power to understand your Bible and understand your spiritual thoughts expressed in spiritual words that only the Spirit can understand because they're meant for the Spirit, Father. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation and cause us to take root, just like it says in the book of Ephesians, that we would no longer be infants tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine and the cunningness and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, but instead in all things will take root, Father. It says we'll take root. Take root. Father, cause us to take root in the wisdom that you share to us through these scriptures. There's so much wisdom there that 
you have to cause us to take root in that wisdom. It's, it's just too much to contain otherwise. So you do it all, Father. You do it all for us. Well, yeah, say good night, Father. Say good night to everybody. Good night, you guys. We love you.